0: The very notion that my research uncovered more than a few church groups and Christian organizations and publications that flatly reject Christian nationalism tells me everything I need to know about it. When you attach religion to nationalist thought, it becomes a recipe for discord on many, many levels. It promotes racism, homophobia, xenophobia, misogyny, and much, much more. Christian nationalism is at its core hopelessly racist, and predominantly white, and creates an even bigger divide between people of different racial or ethnic origins than we have right now. And right now, that divide is huge. We have a Supreme Court that will, for decades to come, make it their business to pander to Christian nationalists and keep giving them whatever the fuck they want with absolutely no deference to the Constitution and what it actually says about any of it all of this leaves us with very little to focus in on in the way of national pride welcome to unbound a podcast for new atheists and lifetime
1: atheists ex-evangelicals truth seekers and free thinkers
0: there is life after faith
1: and life here is good it's time for a new perspective
0: and a better conversation i'm spider
1: and i'm shell and it's it's
0: time to get unbound you know For a religion that vilifies pride of any sort the way evangelicalism does, they sure do seem to have steered a lot of people's thinking in the direction of toxic levels of national pride. So much so that a huge number of people in this country adhere to a nationalist viewpoint. I'm Spider. And I'm Shell, And tonight, we are going to be looking at the differences between patriotism and nationalism and how these two philosophies affect society. As happens often on this show, the focus of the episode shifted considerably in the course of my research. Almost any search criteria I used to get information about the nature of patriotism was hijacked with insane amounts of content about nationalism, and Christian nationalism in particular, and some of the things that I uncovered were infuriating, but none of it was surprising. I'll expand on that thought in just a few, but first, burn the books kill all the gays, and indoctrinate the living shit out of anyone you can find who is under the age of reason. It's Christians behaving badly, what would Hitler do, edition. (laughs) I think that that's very apropos.
1: Oh, definitely.
0: What have you got for us this week?
1: Well, I remember when we first started this podcast, the Christians behaving badly segment was actually pretty fun to put together. It was mostly prophets being wrong and hilarious on the internet and people saying crazy stuff. These days, it's really depressing. Every time I look at the sites I get my stories from, they're full of virulent hate and wishes of death, willful ignorance of both reality and scripture, and no sign of that storied Christian love I've heard so much about.
0: Well, I mean, there's a reason for that. Yeah. Like we've said many times on this show, this is a religion that frames love as hate and hate as love. And as someone on one of my atheist groups very eloquently put it this week, there is no hate like Christian love. Oh, yeah. So this is where the problem lies because everything that they do with quote unquote righteous intent just has an undercurrent of hate. They hate Mm -hmm. anyone and anything that goes contrary to what they believe, what they think, what they believe to be moral and ethical. It's their morals, their values, their opinions, and nothing else matters. So unfortunately, there is a lot of negativity out there and there's not a whole hell of a lot we can do about it. I do, however, think that it's up to those of us who are looking at this as insider outsiders. I I guess that's a good way of putting yeah. it. Because we've been in the thick of this and we've seen we've seen a lot of behind the scenes things that a lot of people haven't seen. But for those of us who have been through this thing and are able to piece certain things together and look at situations like we talk about in this segment from the standpoint of analysis from a logical perspective. I think that yeah. I think that there's a lot of value that we bring to the table by simply talking about these things. And it's in, in a lot of ways, I think that whether they like it or not, it's like holding a mirror up to evangelicals and saying, this is what people who think like you go out in the world and do. And it should bother you. And if it does bother you, keep listening. You yeah. see, that I think is kind of the message that we're trying to send with this but I get what you're saying. It can be very depressing looking at what these people are doing to society and the things that they want to do to society. And that kind of spills over into our main segment. So let's get into the stories that we have for this segment right now.
1: Oh my God. We must protect the children. We
0: must protect the children.
1: So let's take out all the books on LGBTQ issues. This is what a school board candidate thought was a good justification for basically taking out all of the books in a Pride Month display at a public library so that kids couldn't read them? I guess this is what they're going for. Heather Fletcher, who is running for a school board in Maryland, says that she did this and stole a bunch of pins with pronouns on them for people to use for self-identification, and this is how she justified her actions. Fletcher said she was disturbed by the display and worried it would prompt age-inappropriate questions from young children. She said she didn't want her three children to see the word queer on a book and that she removed the items after trying unsuccessfully to convince the staff to move the books out of the main lobby area. This has nothing to do with the gay community, Fletcher said. It has to do with the preservation of innocence.
0: And how long do you think that's going to last? Not very. You know what? And this, it's such an evangelical thing. If your kids have questions about sex, human sexuality, I'm sorry, be honest with them. Right. Regardless of their age be honest with them, frame it in terms that they can understand. You know, you don't have to go too deep into no. details about things. You can explain it to a five-year-old on a five-year-old level because that five-year-old, when they're 10, they're going to remember what they were told when they were five and their understanding of certain things is going to be better then. And when they're 15, they're going to remember what they were told when they were 10 and when they were five, and they'll have an even better understanding of things. And when they're 25, they might have a snowball's chance in hell at having a more healthy thought process about these things, especially when it comes to things that don't meet their own personal preferences in terms of love and sex.
1: Right. But she doesn't want them to have a healthy attitude towards this. No
0: evangelical wants anyone to have a healthy attitude about sex. No. And I've said it before many times on this show and in a lot of other contexts, the issue here is not the lifestyle. The issue is that they start thinking about themselves in these situations and scenarios that come across as icky in their own head. And you know what? I'm going to go right on record. I can absolutely relate to this. But the way that I deal with those feelings is that I just don't have gay sex because it doesn't appeal to me. Right. I don't understand why it appeals to anyone but my brain isn't wired for it so it's right. not going to understand it. So the only thing that's left at that point is to have dialogues with people about the things that they believe, their likes, their dislikes, not getting too personal or, or prying too far into their personal lives, but you know, having a conversation, having a dialogue trying to understand this a little bit better. But you know what? A heterosexual brain is never going to quite understand homosexuality. And that's just the way that it is. And that's okay. That's okay. What's not okay is trying to censor, trying to suppress, trying to marginalized people because you can't wrap your brain around these concepts. Right, I can't wrap my brain around why a man would want to be with another man, but that's because that is not how my brain is wired. I think in very specific terms about my own sexuality and other people think in very specific terms about theirs. So heterosexual sex, is something that they can't wrap their brains around. Right. And I've been told this in so many words by, <laughs> um, by a gay coworker that I worked with and worked with closely almost two decades ago now. Oh, yeah. But I had some great conversations with this guy. And I remember just, we're sitting there at lunch one day, and I said, I just can't understand this like at all. I just, my brain will not process it. And he's like, well, that's okay. We can't understand why you wouldn't like cock. <laughs> so well, there you know, you go. there's there's the answer right there. It's just because this is the way we are all wired to think and we think about it differently. But when you're an evangelical Christian, and this is something that goes against what you're taught from the time you can understand to be quote unquote right, then the level of discomfort yeah. with the very subject of anything that isn't cishet is going to prompt actions like this. And who the fuck is this person to go moving books around in a public library? It's a public library. It is not your fucking living room.
1: Right. And these aren't sex books. They're history books. A few autobiographies. Did she actually think that removing these books would make LGBTQ people not exist?
0: No, but it would take them out of her line of vision. Yeah, and that's what it boils down. They don't want to be confronted with the fact that there are people out there that think and behave differently than they do. Yeah. They don't want to be confronted with it. It's bad enough to know that it's out there, but don't put it right in front of my face as I walk into my public library. Well, you know, tough shit. This yeah. is a very diverse society, and we're going to talk about that more later tonight, too. Mm-hmm. This is a very, very, very diverse society. And The entire fucking country is not your living room. Right. Okay. And you have no say in what happens in public space because even though you are a member of the public, you are one member of the public. Right. And these decisions are not yours to make.
1: Yeah, seriously. Now, what she did was legal. She just checked out the books. I mean, that's what you do at a library. And the library can most likely just restock the display with more books featuring LGBTQ characters, biographies, and history. And the ironic part is that when libraries decide which books to purchase, they look for the amount of times a book has been taken out. (laughs) So Miss Fletcher, by taking out all of those books has ensured that books like those on the Pride Month display will be purchased again. So thanks, I guess.
0: Yeah. <laughs> that's that's priceless. I love it. It's great. Absolutely love it. The counterproductive nature of it is just, I mean, you can tell just how little thought went into this. And you know, I'll, I'll be honest. I'll be perfectly honest here. I didn't think about it from that perspective until yeah. I saw it right here. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, you know what? You're contributing to a certain metric that is just going to perpetuate this thing. Yeah. Okay? So congratulations, you're an idiot.
1: (laughs) Anyway, Ms. Fletcher also decided to go to a library trustees meeting, angry about the pride display and also the pronoun pins. She believed that they were bought with taxpayer funds. Of course, since she obviously knows nothing about how libraries operate, she must have been very surprised at the answer she got. Those were not actually created with any public funds, the library spokesman said. All of our libraries have friends of the library groups that support them, and items like that always come from those funds. So it is not taxpayer money going towards things like More weird is the fact that Ms. Fletcher is running for the public school board, but she has three children, all of which are homeschooled. She hasn't got any skin in this game, and she can only cause harm to the many LGBTQ students she would have authority over if elected.
0: That's just, I mean, that, that is the epitome of hypocrisy right there. Oh
1: God, it's just terrible. She
0: won't put her kids in school, but she wants to have a position where she can have influence over what happens in public school. You yeah. know what, you stupid idiot? Put your kids in school, put your kids in school or step away. Because if you can't support the process enough to send your kids to school then what business do you have trying to enact policy that applies to everyone except your kids?
1: Yeah. And it's like, shouldn't you be at home teaching those children? Because Yeah, for real. They're not gonna teach themselves, well, they probably will anyway.
0: Uh, Yeah. And you know that's the problem. If they were in public school, they'd basically be teaching themselves. But I mean, I can't imagine that homeschooling is that much better.
1: No, it's not that much different at all.
0: No we still need to tackle that subject on this show and you know all i really know about homeschooling right right now is from an experiential standpoint knowing what some people have gone through in terms of being homeschooled what mm-hmm. the outcomes were but you know the the overall practices and and all the things that go into it are things that i've been meaning to do some research on for a while and i think that we need to make sure that that topic gets on our schedule somewhere yeah definitely Oh, and uh, trigger warning for this next segment for violence against the LGBTQ community. Rage-inducing shit coming up. People, brace yourselves. Yeah,
1: unfortunately. In a kickoff to Pride Month that really shows what good old Christian love really is, which is hate. Of course. Pastor Dylan Oz gave a lovely sermon, stating in his opinion that all gays should be killed. He also said that all gays are pedophiles, or will be, and that they also rejoice at the shooting of school children. But then this is the Steadfast Church, where they say shit like this a lot. Ugh, yeah.
0: Where, where where do you get this shit? Where on earth do you, well, I know the answer. You don't find it anywhere. You pull it out of your ass. Well, yeah. Because there's no way to qualify any of those statements. No. But the average pew sitter doesn't care about any of that. It's coming from their pastor. Their pastor is a, is an authority and that's that. So if he says it, it must be true. And that is as far as they're ever going to go with trying to figure out whether it is or not.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, here's as much of an excerpt as I can deal with at the moment. Here's the thing. Here's why reprobates, here's why homosexuals are so dangerous to society. They're not like other sinners in the sense that every single day that they are alive, they're being filled with more and more and more unrighteousness. You look up the statistics on these sodomites that abuse children, there was so many children it'll make you throw up. Disgusting.
0: Okay, but... You need to look it up and you need to qualify that statement and tell us where you found it.
1: These people are not normal. They're not your average everyday sinners. They're what the Bible calls reprobate. They're rejected by God. They have no hope of salvation.
0: I love how one person gets to make that determination and stand ahead of God as judge and jury over these people.
1: Yeah. I mean, there was so much in the excerpts of that sermon that I just couldn't say I just couldn't make those words Mm -hmm. come out of my mouth because it was disgusting.
0: Yeah. And it's all out there.
1: Oh, yeah. It's all out there.
0: And I'm certain it's in our notes. Yeah. Yeah.
1: He uses the F slur often, showing just how classy he is. Of course, he offers no anecdotes or any proof of his claims because there aren't any of those. This guy knows what he's doing. The Steadfast Church is known for saying this sort of stuff. And Oz is only the assistant pastor. The head pastor, Jonathan Shelley, has actually celebrated the death of a gay man at a pride parade. He regularly prays for the death of gay people.
0: This is my commandment, that you love one another, that your joy may be full. These people seem pretty fucking joyless to me.
1: Yeah, this and, is... Yeah. you know,
0: just the, the unfounded, baseless hatred of... Of people simply because they have a lifestyle that you find icky. <laughs> it just it absolutely dumbfounds me. And things are definitely escalating here yeah. in terms of the way that these ideas are presented. You know, when I was a teenager, it was just framed as sin. Yeah. And now it's framed as a capital offense. Yeah. Things are escalating to an alarming it really, degree.
1: It really is. Uh, like, there were more of these types of stories in the sites I was looking on. There was one guy who said that anybody who sympathizes with the LGBTQ community should be shot.
0: Well, yeah. Didn't didn't that show up in an earlier CBB?
1: Oh, probably. I'm pretty sure it did. But, like, this isn't even gay people. This is just people who support them.
0: Well, Yeah. And because like, of course they're part of the problem of because course. they're giving these people their quote unquote platform by standing behind them and advocating for them so of course they're every bit as guilty as the one committing the quote unquote sin
1: yeah but seriously such a great example of christian love
0: yeah ain't no hate out there like christian love that's true and uh this last one um yeah, we've talked in depth in past episodes about the indoctrination of the young, mm-hmm. and here's just a little bit more—a um, li- a little bit more blood boiling content on that.
1: Yeah, there ain't no opportunist like a Christian opportunist, and the Child Evangelism Fellowship is one of the worst. If you don't know who they are, they are an organization founded in 1937 in order to teach the Christian gospel to children and to encourage children's involvement in local Christian churches. They are known to create after-school good news clubs in order to do this. Oh, those
0: good news clubs. Ugh. <sighs> okay.
1: They have come under fire for bribing children to bring in children of other faiths whose parents did not enroll them in the program, as well as distributing material
0: in public schools. Yeah, we talked about this sort of thing when we did our, uh, our it was a two-part yeah. thing that we did on how, how they go after the young, yeah. and it's like, I, I can't even imagine how this is legal. Going after other people's children, especially children of parents who are of completely other faiths. Yeah. You know, I, I, I feel like, you know, one, you know, trading one religion for another is, you know, six of one, half a dozen of the other. Right. But you don't do this without the permission of the parents. You yeah. just don't. These aren't your kids. Fuck off.
1: Yeah. Right. These are the people who put themselves on the border of Ukraine to proselytize traumatized child refugees. So the fact that they are now targeting Uvalde shouldn't be a surprise to anyone.
0: Doesn't surprise me.
1: The little booklets they distribute to these traumatized children are called Do You Wonder Why? Answers to Tough Questions. Oh, brother. Yeah. Yeah. In the booklets, CEF keeps consistent with their decades-old message that everything in the Bible is literally true because God never lies. God has nothing to do with any of the bad stuff that happens in the world, but should be praised for all the good stuff, and anything bad that happens is a result of man's sinful nature. CEF feels their booklets about damning children to eternal torture will be especially helpful to those who watch their classmates gunned down in front of them. It seems to be lost on CEF leadership, or even more horrifically, maybe not.
0: Definitely not
1: that these booklets are also indirectly letting kids know that the 19 child victims in the school shooting are currently burning in hell unless they previously committed their lives to following Christ.
0: Oh, for fuck's sake. You know, it, I'm sitting here acting appalled. Well, I'm, I'm not acting. I'm I'm, ask, I'm actually appalled. But yeah, I think that it has more to do with how readily I accepted Some of this stuff when I was younger. Although by the time I got to college and we had one of our favorite professors talking about how some babies go to hell based on the probability of whether or not their parents would have facilitated them meeting Christ, you know, by the time I had reached that point in my life, I was already shocked and appalled by the idea that any loving, merciful, righteous judge of a God Mm. would do any such fucking thing. No. And I didn't believe it then. Even when I believed, in a place called hell i never ever 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 believed that any god that would get my worship would ever in a million years do anything like that yeah but it is popular and prevalent messaging and it all goes right back to the old fear factor yeah because now we're using fear to proselytize the young and put thoughts in their head of what's happening to their friends right now and You don't want that to happen to you, so pray this prayer with us. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
1: Child Evangelism Fellowship has a new goal to reach all the Uvalde homes. I'm hoping that the children's parents understand just how additionally traumatizing these proselytizers can be.
0: And I hope that they follow up on that thought by just telling them to shut the fuck up and get the fuck out.
1: Yeah, really. That
0: That would really be helpful.
1: And this week... In Christian Prophecy, Kenneth Copeland says he predicted the inflation crisis. Of Of course, course, of course he did. Of course. Yeah. Kenneth Copeland says a lot of things, you know, like calling poor people demons and the like. Or how about the multiple times he proclaimed COVID gone? The point is, he's wrong a lot
0: he's wrong by definition, but yeah. Yes.
1: But you know, he had a dream where he couldn't count his money a while ago, so he's now proclaiming that he predicted the inflation crisis. He said he dreamt that he had a roll of money with no denominations, so he couldn't figure out how much it was worth. Clearly it was prophetic.
0: Or clearly it was just a misprint at the Mint. I mean, yeah. <laughs> the, the things that he comes out with, the things that all of these people come out with, I think yeah. about Kat Kern, the crazy shit that she oh, dreams about, yeah. you know, all of this stuff, you know, he's, he's, uh, he's dreaming that he can't count his money. Well, all I can say is Lord speed the day, you know, <laughs> let's, let's, let's let this guy reach a point where he is too demented and too, too out of his own mind to be able to even count to 10 anymore. Yeah. Because once we reach that point, then we won't be dealing with his idiocy week after week, month after month, year after year. And maybe, just maybe, if we had the chance to, uh, to look at his entire career <laughs> without him running interference on all of it, we might start to understand just why in the hell these people are so fucking successful. Why they get so many people to give them so much money. There are answers to these questions, but the way that they hide behind what they do, the way that they hide every facet of what they do makes it impossible to figure this out. So. Maybe if he was in an actual position where he couldn't count his money, we might start getting some answers. Because so much of this starts with him. He has so many protégés and so many people that follow his model of how to do this. It's like you figure out Kenneth Copeland and you have figured out the entire game. You have exposed the man behind the curtain. (laughs) So... Here's hoping. Here's hoping that your dream comes true, Kenneth Copeland. Here's hoping (laughs) that we reach a point where you literally cannot count the money that's coming to you. And maybe we'll find some of our answers through that. And on that happy note, we just want to let you know that our Patreon is active at patreon.com slash Unbound Podcast Network. Any size donation that you can throw our way is going to help us help other people get and stay unbound. Starts at the $5 level. That's just about a dollar an episode. And you will be playing an integral role in our effort to keep this messaging in front of people. So if you have the money to help us out, we would appreciate it. And if not, we appreciate everything else that you do for us, your likes, your shares, your five-star ratings, telling as many people as you can about the show and getting some more people excited about what we're doing here. And even more importantly, getting the messaging in front of people who need to hear it, because that is how we bring about change by using our voices and using our intellects and our senses of reason to shed light on the chaos that is this religion that does a stellar job of framing love as hate and hate as love, and definitely more the latter than the former. Their hate is showing so much in the world right now that it is, in our opinion, our responsibility to shed light on it. And that's why we keep doing that Christians Behaving Badly segment. It can be a little bit uh, disheartening and discouraging at times. But as the book says, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. I don't give a fuck what the actual context was of the words. There is truth in that sentence that spans a number of contexts. And this is one of them. Know the truth because that is what gets you unbound. With that, we just want to let you know what's coming up in the next couple of weeks. Next week, I'm going to have a little fireside chat with any of the young people out there who are getting ready to go off to Bible college this fall, who have been told by their youth pastors and other people around them, that they have a calling on their lives. So you want to be a pastor? Okay, well, here's what you can expect. And then you can decide whether or not you want to ditch your plans of law school to go to Bible college or not, Mm -hmm. whether or not you want to ditch your plans of learning some kind of valuable skill or trade so that you can go learn how to preach. There are certain pros, but many, many more cons to embracing this kind of vocation and lifestyle and we're going to we're going to look at the good the bad and the ugly. Yeah. Um spoiler alert, the good is going to be the shortest part of the segment. Yeah. And that's just the way that it is. Mm-hmm. So come back next week for that and be prepared to uh, to share it out to anyone that you know who is about to throw their intellect, their education and quite literally their life away on Bible college to go into the ministry. And I know that there are a lot of people who listen to the show who know of young people who are right now considering and contemplating this decision. And whatever I can do to keep you out of that situation, I'm going to do it. We've got the episode next week, and then we've got our uh, early episodes on the subject of Bible College, which I believe was episode five and six. It's either yeah. four and five or five and six. I know five is one of them. And if you dig that far back into the archives, then you've got even more ammunition to share with them because our experiences were, to me, a clear example of why it's just a flat-out bad idea. Mm-hmm. So that's next week. Um, the week after, I'm going to be recovering from road tests, and I'm going to be taking a much-needed brain break, I mean, we sat down to record tonight and, and I just realized it's Friday night We're we're doing this a day late yet again, because of everything that's going on in my life with my business and all of that. We're doing this on a better late than never kind of schedule at this point. Yeah. And still, I'm, I'm still managing to get it out on Sunday, but it is currently Friday night. And I sat down to, uh, to start this and I don't even remember what we were talking about in, in context, but I said, Jesus, I really have no time. That's mine right now. So these weeks these little sabbaticals that I take around road test time I'm also then giving myself a little bit of a break by taking a day or two off from doing lessons after that so that I can you know recharge a little bit. Yeah. So these weeks are are good for me it's keeping me more focused on everything that I need to do including this show. And then we're going to come back with a fun episode on July 3rd. We're we're going to kind of shrug off the whole American pride thing with the 4th of July and just have a fun conversation about the movie Star Trek V The Final Frontier. This is most people's least favorite in the series, but it's in my top three, and for reasons that I'm going to go into a lot more detail about when we put the episode together. So come back for that in uh, in just three weeks. And with that, let's dive into this conversation on patriotism versus nationalism. base. Patriotism encompasses a number of actions and attitudes, many of which are positives and promote the betterment of the country to which it's applied. You don't have to be a war hero to be a patriot. You don't have to be a political activist. You don't have to support the president if he's wrong or stand for things that are themselves not patriotic. And you don't have to swear your allegiance to a piece of cloth. In fact, some acts of patriotism do lead us in the direction of being better, more informed citizens. These include things like knowing our history, and I mean our real history, not what you get in a high school textbook, our real history, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And again, that first segment is kind of the smallest. <laughs> Sad but true. Yeah. But if you want to know the truth and you want to call yourself a patriotic American, you have to at least, at a bare minimum, know what the real history is behind some of the stories that you were told throughout your uh, grade school years. Understanding the nature of freedom and working to ensure that all people enjoy it is a huge act of patriotism, as is participation in government, and that includes things like voting, campaigning, supporting candidates that stand for freedom and human rights, and most importantly, secular ideals. Contributing positively to society through your work, giving to causes that promote better standards of living, and more are also ways that you can show your patriotism. And this includes things like giving to humanitarian causes, volunteering your time to political campaigns, and devoting your professional and vocational pursuits to things that make people's lives better and happier. Another huge act of patriotism is celebrating diversity and standing up for the rights of people to live lives that afford them true liberty and the pursuit of happiness, like supporting pro-choice organizations and politicians, LGBTQ causes, and yes, even standing up for religious liberty. Keep in mind that the right to be an atheist without fear of backlash, whether or not we enjoy that very much or not, falls under the cover of religious liberty on a societal level, even if it doesn't on a philosophical one. Participating in civic organizations that do positive work in their communities is very patriotic, as is supporting local businesses and contributing positively to the local economy. You can support causes that improve the lives of indigenous peoples. That is hugely patriotic. And you can take the time to understand the current political landscape in our country. Other ways that you can show your patriotism include fighting racism, homophobia, and xenophobia, things that cause a lot of division in society. You can strive to be an informed citizen in matters of politics at all levels. And that starts at your local community going forward right up to federal level. You can show your patriotism by holding the government accountable on all social, economic, and policy-making fronts to ensure equal rights among all of our citizens, regardless of their race, ethnicity, sexual orientation, gender, sex, or anything. And another big one, in my opinion, is admitting to the flaws that exist in our society and doing something to bring about positive change. Last but not least, voting in all elections. Mm -hmm. I think that the single most patriotic thing that the common person in this country can do is simply get off their ass and vote. Now, I have one honorable mention here. I halted between two opinions for quite a while about including military service in this list. I'm not anti-military by any means, but I do think that most citizens are being sold a bill of goods about what our military exists to accomplish. And yeah they they do protect us on a number of fronts but unfortunately i also think that precious little of what the military does has anything to do with defending our freedom and liberty there is that aspect of it and there and and i think that it's an important part of the process i just think that it's far too small of one and it's framed in a way that makes it look like the single largest and most important thing when in reality that's not the way that the process of how we organize our national defense. That's not the way that it works in most circumstances. Now, that being said, I do believe that many of our enlisted military personnel did enlist for patriotic reasons. That said, supporting veterans and veteran-related causes is, in my opinion, also an act of patriotism. Why? (laughs) Because someone has to. These people might have bought into a lot of baseless propaganda when they decided to serve, but that wasn't their fault. When people enlist in the armed forces, their own intent is typically righteous and patriotic. Many who make the decision to enlist do so for the right reasons, not the underlying ones fueled by a government that does literally everything for profit. And people, war is big business. And our government doesn't care how many lives it sacrifices for the profiteering that fuels most modern wars and conflicts. They just don't. So on the heels of that nice long bullet list, of things that identify patriotism, let's look now at the other side of this discussion and look at what nationalism actually is. Webster's Dictionary defines nationalism as quote, exalting one nation above all others and placing primary emphasis on promotion of its culture and interests as opposed to those of other nations. And this right here is where you get the greatest country on earth doctrine. It's something that nationalists of all description, not just Christian nationalists, think and propagate as an idea with absolutely no proof. They take an opinion and elevate it to an ideal. It's true because I believe it. See, that kind of shit isn't just for religion, but religion and nationalism go really, really well together. The next part I find absolutely farcical as it relates to the United States and the part that I'm referring to is the promotion of its culture. Here's the problem with that. America doesn't have an identifiable central culture. Let's try to remember that America is called a melting pot. People from all over the world influence the culture of America, but we really don't have our own central identity. You look at other countries, and many or most have certain things that define them. A collective zeitgeist that sharply identifies them as a people and can be recognized easily by others. America does have its collective traditions and practices, but there are different emphases on those things depending on where you go. Where we live in Massachusetts, just for the sake of example, you need only drive about 30 minutes from point A to point B, and you see a cultural shift from a more urban, upper-class, white-collar society to a more rural, middle-class, blue-collar society, and the people you find in both places are as different as night and day in how they think and behave. There's also long-enduring disparity between how different people in different places view what America is. To this day in the United States, people in the North learn about an event in U.S. history known as the Civil War. But, crossed the Mason-Dixon line, and all of a sudden the same event is referred to as the war between the states in more polite contexts and the war of northern aggression in other less complementary ones because even today there are people in the South who can't swallow the characterization of what happened during that war as civil. They'll tell you point blank there was nothing civil about it. Hence the other two monikers that exist to describe it in mostly Southern educational settings. And if we are to understand things more thoroughly, we need to also consider that there isn't one collective culture here, but many. E pluribus unum means a lot more than simply a drawing between state lines and the sovereignty of states' rights. In his book, American Nations, Colin Woodard presents the idea that the American continent is actually comprised of 11 different nations, each with its own culture with the vast majority of those cultural lines drawn within the boundaries of the United States. Business Insider did a stellar article on this a few years back that I'm going to borrow heavily from going through the various nations that exist within our boundaries. For starters, we have where we live, Yankeedom. (laughs) Yankeedom comprises almost the entire northeast, uh, north of New York City, and makes its way through Michigan, Wisconsin, and Minnesota also. The article says that Yankeedom, quote, values education, intellectual achievement, communal empowerment, and citizen participation in government as a shield against tyranny. Woodall posits that the area was settled by, quote, radical Calvinists, but there is plenty of Catholic and traditional Protestantism influence in Yankeedom too, and more recently evangelicalism and white evangelicalism, particularly in Northern New England. Next, we have New Netherland, And this is basically New York City. New York City is the center of New Netherland, but it also includes northern New Jersey. They are what Woodard calls a natural ally of Yankeedom that is comprised of, quote, a highly commercial culture that is materialistic with a profound tolerance for ethnic and religious diversity and an unflinching commitment to the freedom of inquiry and conscience. It is so named for its high concentration of original Dutch settlers. And it's, it's also noteworthy that Dutch influence actually extends further, quote unquote, upstate in New York. That's a term that those of us native to the state use for anything that's basically above Westchester County. Everything north of the five boroughs, basically, is considered part of Yankeedom. Next, we have the Midlands. Midlands is largely middle class and defines the culture of the American heartland. Political leanings are moderate and they don't like the idea of government regulation. Woodard calls the Ethnically diverse Midlands, quote, America's great swing region. Midlands comprises parts of New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Missouri, Iowa, Kansas, and Nebraska. I'm shocked. I'm <laughs> absolu- absolutely shocked that New Jersey is in there anywhere. Yeah. But here we are. And then we have a really, really small one called Tidewater that encompasses Chesapeake Bay and North Carolina. Tidewater began as, quote, a feudal society that embraced slavery. They value things, allegedly, like respect for authority and tradition. Too bad that tradition includes things like, you know, slavery. Hmm. Then there's Greater Appalachia, and we talked about this region a lot in our episode about snake handlers. The article says that, quote, Greater Appalachia is stereotyped as the land of hillbillies and rednecks, unquote. According to Woodard, Appalachia values personal sovereignty and individual liberty and is intensely suspicious of lowland aristocrats and Yankee social engineers alike. I'm not sure precisely where some of this comes from. I'm going to be very, very honest here. And I also don't think that it's a zero-sum game. I don't think that you can lump everybody in these areas into opinions like this. But there are some prevailing opinions out there that sort of tip a toe in this sort of thing. The culture of Greater Appalachia meshes well with the Deep South and shares the Deep South's dislike of governmental influence. Greater Appalachia includes parts of Kentucky, Tennessee, West Virginia, Arkansas, Missouri, Oklahoma, Indiana, Illinois, and Texas. So that's an interesting part of this. Not all of these are connected by geography. Some just share specific social and political influences and pop up in different places. And since we just mentioned it, the Deep South is another one. According to Woodard, the Deep South was established by English slave lords from Barbados and was styled as a West Indies-style slave society. It has a very rigid social structure that places high value on individual liberty, and it is made up of parts of Alabama, Florida, Mississippi, Texas, Georgia, and South Carolina. Texas shows up a lot. There's a lot of these diversities just within the state of Texas.
1: But it's a large state anyway.
0: It it is a very large state. But I just find it interesting how many of these yeah. dip a toe into this one state. Yeah. Um, then we have El Norte. El Norte is a center of Hispanic culture that, quote, values independence, self-sufficiency, and hard work above all else, according to Woodard. It is comprised, again, of parts of Texas, Arizona, New Mexico, and California. And just one more quick thought on this. Texas, it, it just feels like it doesn't know what it wants to be aside from a state of bounty hunters out to get women who want abortions and one with an express lane to a lethal injection. That is they sure should know that they want to be those things. Then we've got, I do a lot of Texas bashing. I've never actually been there. Maybe I should go and see what it's like. Yeah. I mean, the ACA is there, so uh, it can't be all bad. That's
1: Austin and Austin is a more liberal city in Texas.
0: Yeah. So it's kind of an oasis, right? Yeah. Got it. Um, the Left Coast is the next one, and it surprised me to learn that this region was actually colonized in part by New Englanders. That's a, that's a long haul. Mm-hmm. It also has Appalachian and Midwestern influence. The Left Coast, according to Woodard, is a hybrid of, quote, Yankee utopianism and Appalachian self-expression and exploration. It is also Yankeedom's top ally. It's made up of coastal California, Oregon, and Washington state. The Far West, AKA the conservative West, is known for its investment in industry and its dislike of, quote, Eastern interests. Those interests, ironically enough, were the foundation and framework for their way of life when America was young. The region is huge, being made up of a number of states, including, take a deep breath, Idaho, Montana, Wyoming, Utah, Nevada, Nebraska, Kansas, Arizona, New Mexico, Colorado, North Dakota, South Dakota, Washington, Oregon, and California. The most influential group in the Far West? Why? The Mormons.
1: Go figure.
0: And looking at the landscape here, it doesn't surprise me that much. Mm. Then we've got another really, really tiny one that's called New France. Um, believe it or not, there are liberal pockets in the South, very liberal pockets in the South, and New France is the nation that is home to them. In fact, Woodard says that New France is among the most liberal places in North America, go figure. New France is relatively small with a concentration that only covers the area around New Orleans, but they also have a Northern neighbor in Quebec. Both of these places are considered to be part of the same quote unquote nation. Finally, we have First Nation. This is the only one that doesn't have a designated area within the US. It's actually based in Northern Canada but it has a diaspora of representation throughout the United States. It's geographically huge, but has a tiny population of only about 300,000 indigenous people from various tribes. So with all this diversity of cultures, what do nationalists have to call their own when it comes to the culture of America? Well, (laughs) we have these things going for us. Mm. An overwhelming attitude of largesse that extends from the cars we drive to the size of portions in our restaurants. The insane pace of our lives Mm. that we talked about a bit last week and that I kind of whined about a couple of minutes ago. (laughs) Leaving someone else to see to things that we should really be doing for ourselves, like preparing our food and uh, seeing to other luxuries and creature comforts you know, as Americans, we go out of our way to avoid some of the very basic responsibilities that people everywhere else just sort of understand are theirs. We also have a nonsensical devotion to sports. And, uh, you know, don't even get me started on this one. I I was watching a YouTube video not long ago that highlighted our obsession with college sports, not even professional sports. Yeah. Some of the biggest arenas that we have in the United States are not are not major league or uh, or professional league stadiums they're college stadiums they're college venues and they're some of the biggest ones that we have and then there's the ever growing epidemic of obesity we have the worst eating habits of any industrialized nation just for the sake of example chinese people don't eat what we call chinese food go to china and see what's around you know it's not going to look anything like your corner takeout it's just not And the reason for that is simple. Americans need everything they eat to be bogged down with sugar and carbohydrates. So to maintain that competitive edge, they have over time really, really, really adjusted the things that they offer and call quote unquote Chinese food. Most of it isn't even close. And just as another little aside here in terms of our diets and the way that we approach things, you'd be hard pressed to find things like supersized anything particularly soft drinks with uh, with free refills outside the US. I mean there are pockets. there are places where these things exist but but they're not out there with anywhere near the commonality that they are here. We also have a very unhealthy attitude toward competition and that is on every conceivable level mm-hmm. from sports to business to industry to education, um, getting into various colleges, and the aggressively competitive nature of getting into a quote-unquote good school, we view competition as an overall concept in a very, very unhealthy way. Here, we also have an inherent need to hide behind our own bigotry by way of this mask of political correctness. Political correctness is not a thing in other in other countries, at least not to the extent that it is here. It's kind of finding its way around the UK a little bit, but in most of the, in most of the world. Um, people are way, way more genuine in the way that they deal with the things that they think and the way that they behave. They don't put on the kind of airs that we do because with all due respect, the whole political correctness thing is there to specifically mask mostly things like racism and dislike of people who are not like us or concepts that make us uncomfortable. So We pretend to embrace them, and we use language that suggests that we embrace them, while right beneath the surface, we barely tolerate their existence, and that's political correctness in a nutshell. We go out of our way not to offend people, but it's not for them, it's for us. Then there's this overwhelming need to be entertained. Hence, the huge entertainment industry that exists in the United States Between movies, music, and television, there isn't another nation on earth that spends the amount of money that we do on entertainment, and that's to produce it and to consume it. And we also have a huge divide between our melting pot identity and the fact that most of us only speak English. Being bilingual or multilingual is common in nearly every other part of the world, but not here. So that's what we have to go by in terms of identifying an actual quote unquote culture in America and I think that's kind of pathetic. Yeah. And just like we talked about last week all of this leaves us with very little to focus in on in the way of national pride. So what do nationalists here tend to focus on when deciding what the culture and values of America are going to be? Well, it starts and ends with religion of course and Christianity in particular. Christianity today actually had this to say. They said humanity is not easily divisible into mutually distinct cultural units. Cultures overlap and their borders are fuzzy, and since cultural units are fuzzy, they make a poor fit as the foundation for political order. Cultural identities are fluid and hard to draw boundaries around, but political boundaries are hard and semi-permanent. Attempting to found political legitimacy on cultural likeness means political order will constantly be in danger of being felt as illegitimate by some group or another. Cultural pluralism is essentially inevitable in every nation. And then there's this from the National Council of Churches. Morally, Christian nationalism gives little attention to structural issues of poverty, racism, and the healing of our planet and international peace, thereby undermining justice and causing great harm. This results in individual manifestations of Christian nationalism that negatively affect persons and communities of color. And that right there is where nationalism in any form begins to fall apart. And just to be sure we understand where the key differences lie, here's a little compare and contrast that should help clear up a few of the most important bullet points in this discussion. We're going to take a quick look at some of the key differences between patriotism and nationalism. As a framework for the rest of this discussion. Patriotism involves taking pride in who you are. Nationalism involves taking pride in who you aren't. Thinking that you're better than someone who doesn't look, think, or behave the way you do is the basic takeaway there. And I find it interesting that the Bible actually warns about this. Luke 18, 14b from the NIV, that means it's the second half of the verse for those not in the know, It says, all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And I think Christian nationalists really ought to be taking a leaf out of that book, quite literally. Mm. Patriotism is all about learning from history, while nationalism is about rewriting history. And there is so much of this that permeates our school system. It doesn't have to be Christian nationalism, because there's a lot of nationalism in the average high school U.S. history book. Way, way too much, Mm. um, if uh, if we're going to be completely honest here. When something is not right, the average patriot thinks my country is wrong about action A, policy B, or law C, whereas the nationalist will look at the same things and say, whatever, this is my country, right or wrong, and I'm going to support it. Patriotism stands up against social injustice and the infringement upon the rights of others, while nationalism champions violence and aggression against anyone. Their prejudices dictate hating and attempts to strip them of, or at very least trounce upon an attempt to suppress the rights they hold, while at the same time asserting their own rights with the same levels of aggression. No, I will not wear a mask. It violates my liberty. That's very nationalistic kind of thinking. Patriotism is largely democratic or centered on human rights and people's open participation in government. Nationalism is largely fascist and centered on self-interest. So with all of that in mind, let's talk about Christian nationalism and the cesspool of thought that it actually is. This also comes from Christianity Today. I'm going to read what they say and add my own commentary in the margins here. Here's what they have to say. Christian nationalism is the belief that the American nation is defined by Christianity and the government should take active steps to keep it that way. And my response to that is, believe what you want. America isn't now nor has it ever been defined by any religion. But here's the problem. Our government is taking active steps to keep it that way and will as long as we keep electing people who want to keep it that way. Christian nationalists assert that America is and must remain a Christian nation, not merely as an observation about American history, but as a prescriptive program for what America must continue to be in the future. My response to that is that America cannot continue to be something it never was. The notion that it is or was anything of the sort is nothing but propaganda. The Constitution actually goes great lengths to ensure that no religion emerges as a defining part of our society. The First Amendment is very clear. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Translation, we neither endorse nor decry anything that anyone wants to believe. That is the messaging of the First Amendment. There's absolutely nothing in there about America being a Christian nation. And then the article says that America is defined by its Anglo-Protestant past, and we will lose our identity and our freedom if we do not preserve our cultural inheritance. Thanks, but I'm not interested in identifying as anything that perpetuates hate, denies women the freedom to live alongside men with the same sovereignty over their bodies that all men enjoy, and allows people to call for the mass execution of an entire people group with impunity when the same when said about the president, just one person, is punishable under the law. Again, back to the article, Christian nationalists do not reject the First Amendment and do not advocate for theocracy. No, but they sure do misinterpret the First Amendment and try to twist its meaning to suit their needs. And the very notion that they don't advocate for theocracy is utterly laughable. Of course they do. Why go after abortion rights and call for the mass execution of gays otherwise? Mm. Next, they say that Christian nationalists do believe that Christianity should enjoy a privileged position in the public square. So they don't advocate for theocracy. They just want their religion to be the only one of import in their government. Got it. At least they had the balls to admit that it's about asserting privilege. I'll give them that. (laughs) And then they say the term Christian nationalism is relatively new, and its advocates generally do not use it of themselves. My response? There's a reason for that, just like there's a reason why Klansmen wear masks. And the second half of that thought is that it accurately describes American nationalists who believe American identity is inextricable from Christianity. Well, again, at least they're honest. You don't see that every day. And here's something else to consider here. Christian nationalism and its influence are the cornerstone of most of the idiotic whining that most Christians engage in when they don't get their way about literally anything. They aren't all Christian nationalists by definition, but it is nearly impossible to grow up evangelical without having a sense of nationalism drilled firmly into your psyche long before adulthood. And here's why the very notion of nationalism of any flavor is a bad idea. Even Christianity today views Christian nationalism as a serious problem, and here's why. When nationalists go about constructing their nation, they have to define who is and who is not part of it. Now comes the part where you get everyone to agree on all points across the board. When it comes to Christian nationalism, I have more than 200 distinct denominations of Christianity in the US alone that tell me that this is an outright impossibility. There will always be those who rise up and demand that their way be the only way, or fuck the whole damn thing. So what happens then? We defer to a might-makes-right model and establish a cultural template by force, and historically, nationalist governments never benefit anyone. They quickly turn authoritarian and oppressive in practice, according to the article, which then goes on to say, In past generations, to the extent that the United States had a quasi-established official religion of Protestantism, it did not respect true religious freedom. Worse, the United States and many individual states used Christianity as a prop to support slavery and segregation. Christian nationalism is the driving force behind the thought that America is a Christian nation. (laughs) It is not. And that Christian morals should be the foundation for not just how we behave, but also the laws and policies our government enacts. Needless to say, this notion is 100% cuckoo, but here's the problem. Not only does thought like this have a lot of support, the people who think these kinds of thoughts are actually making things happen. Right now, today, in the land of the free, There are two states that have quite literally put a bounty on women who get abortions and the people who help them get abortions, and they have licensed every citizen in their states as bounty hunters. Roe versus Wade is about to be overturned, and we have a Supreme Court that will, for decades to come, make it their business to pander to Christian nationalists and keep giving them whatever the fuck they want with absolutely no deference to the Constitution and what it actually says about any of it. Burwell versus Hobby Lobby is an example, and in the years to come we are poised well to look back on that ruling and the vile precedent it sets as just the tip of the theocratic iceberg. This is why we cannot, we cannot let Christian nationalism gain a foothold. It isn't enough to simply influence government. They want that direct definition of America as a Christian nation to be a reality. They want to teach history from the perspective of America having a Christian heritage, which it flatly does not have. They want school children indoctrinated as much in their public school classrooms as they are in their Sunday school classrooms. Some Christian nationalists also want their own moral code to be established as law and punish people for deviating from their definition of morality. If they have their way, not only will women's rights be set back 50 years, but it would become flat-out illegal to be gay or even have sex outside of marriage. And if that isn't enough, Christian nationalism is, at its core, hopelessly racist and predominantly white and creates an even bigger divide between people of different racial or ethnic origins than we have right now. And right now, that divide is huge. I already mentioned Roe v. Wade and Burwell versus Hobby Lobby. Those are two recent examples. But these two cases also perpetuate and, in the minds of many, validate the notion of Christian persecution. It took the Supreme Court to allow Hobby Lobby to withhold birth control right. from their employees. So clearly, they were being persecuted by the law that told them that they had to. And Christian nationalism relies heavily on victim and persecution doctrine to attract sympathizers and fuel anger, fear, and hate. All things that instill the kind of preservationist mentality that makes people believe that not only has this country always been a Christian nation, but that it is now necessary to defend that heritage and do it by any means necessary. The January 6th insurrection was a direct result of that kind of thinking. So is Christian nationalism that big a threat right now? Well, you tell me. Nearly 20% of Americans embrace the idea. 20% one in five. Think about it. One in five people embrace ideologies and ideas that can be at least identified with nationalism. And while that's far from a majority, that is a shit lot of people. More than 66 million, to be precise. More than enough to steer an election if all of them vote and if those who oppose them just stay home and do nothing. Just sit on their couches and do nothing. Also, if Christian nationalists ever got their way, it would be the end of both religious freedom and democracy as we know it. And a lot of Christians actually do understand this. All public policy would become based on religious ideals and the diluted concept of God's will. The very notion that my research uncovered more than a few church groups and Christian organizations and publications that flatly reject Christian nationalism tells me everything I need to know about it. When a religion that is rooted and built up on a foundation of intolerance, bigotry, and hate look at something as being too intolerant, too bigoted, and too hateful, you have to know that something is wrong with it. Fortunately, we still live in a country where the majority of Christian churches and organizations still see the harm that this kind of ideology can bring. That's encouraging. The power of the Supreme Court and its ability to reinvent the Constitution, however, is terrifying. I believe that it will be through them that Christian nationalism will start slowly weaving its way into the fabric of our laws and government, slowly chipping away at the First Amendment until its words and the freedoms it was created to protect literally sink away into obsolescence if we let it happen. The good news is that as long as states' rights remain a thing, we can hold it back from spreading like the cancer that it is, but it takes action to preserve those rights. Again, That means electing officials who recognize the threat that Christian nationalism poses to our lives and our democracy. Christian nationalists almost uniformly identify as patriots. But as we've already established, there is a huge divide between patriotism and nationalism. And when you attach religion to nationalist thought, it becomes a recipe for discord on many, many levels. It promotes racism, homophobia, xenophobia, misogyny, and much, much more. There is nothing wrong with having a little national pride. If you can look at the America you live in and love it, more power to you. I just hope you love it enough to use your voice in a way that keeps steering it toward the greatness we've been brainwashed into believing it already possesses. Because as long as there are enough Christian churches and organizations out there that see this thing for what it is and keep speaking out against it, there's a good chance that their words will amplify those of people like us who champion secularization in society and see the overall dangers of religious influence because plenty of Christians out there recognize that too much of that influence is a bad thing. It chips away at our liberty and our freedom and has potential to end the American experiment, the secular American experiment that got its start with the simple but vitally important phrase that is at the heart of this argument, we the people, not Christian people, not white people, just people who want to maintain the shred of freedom we have here when it comes to how we are allowed to live our lives and our ability to adopt and exercise our own moral code on both societal and personal levels. And let's not forget the single most patriotic thing that most of us who are part of the general public can do to defend our way of life and the liberties we have and to fight for a stronger, better America. And that, once again, is voting. The midterms will be upon us before we know it. Vote against Christian nationalist thought. Vote against the ideals that fuel their agenda. Vote for politicians who will strive to protect the things that Christian nationalism wants to take away. It's a long road and one that will involve persistent, vocal, and visible resistance to the right and the radicals who try to control it. But... Our grandchildren's grandchildren will thank us for it, because if we start right now, we might be able to offer them the chance to live in an America that is finally, truly, and honestly free, or as we like to put it around here, unbound. Enjoyed this episode of Unbound. Show topics are chosen based on their timeliness, relevance, and social impact. Have suggestions for future topics? Email us at unbound.podcast.network at gmail.com with all your comments and feedback. Please don't forget to like, share, and throw a few five star ratings our way and follow us on all major social platforms. And don't forget to hit subscribe if you haven't already. Links to our social pages as well as a full list of cited sources in today's episode are listed in the show notes, available at our website, getunbound.org. That's get-unbound.org. If you value this resource and would like to see it continue, please consider supporting us on Patreon at the link in the show description. And be sure to check for new updates every Sunday when we'll come together again and take one more step toward getting and staying unbound.